Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. Pakistan needs to change. The fact that Pakistan chose to become an ideological country with its ideology having only two pillars, religion, Islamic religion, and antipathy towards India, that is the reason why Pakistan does not do well economically. What happens if Pakistan can't change? There is always the potential for political fragmentation or internal conflict that lasts for a long time. Pakistan must change for its own sake. Hussein Akani is currently a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He served as Pakistan's ambassador to the United States from 2008 to 2011, and he is widely credited with managing a difficult partnership during a critical phase in the global war on terror. Ambassador Haqqani's career in government includes serving as an advisor to four Pakistani prime ministers. The ambassador frequently writes and speaks on South Asian affairs, and he is the author of a new book, Reimagining Pakistan, Transforming a Dysfunctional Nuclear State. I had the opportunity to sit down with Ambassador Haqqani and talk about one of the most interesting and important countries in the world, Pakistan. We'll be right back with that conversation. I am Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From end-to-end cybersecurity to high-energy lasers to quantum computers, Raytheon is there. Advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Ambassador Haqqani, it is so good of you to join us. We spent a lot of time together when I was deputy director of CIA and you were your country's ambassador to the United States. Um, It's great to see you again. It's great to see you again, Mike. I want to start by asking you about what happened on December 27th, 2007. I know you know that date seared into your mind, uh, the assassination of Benazir Bhutto. Where were you when it happened, and why was that so very, very important? Well, I was in Boston. Uh, I was teaching at Boston University in those days. I had been working together with Benazir Bhutto 
for several years. Uh, she was in exile, as was I, but my exile was in America as a professor, and hers was in Dubai, preparing to go back to Pakistan one of these days. Uh, we were able to do that. She went back. Uh, the U.S. government also played a role in it in convincing President Musharraf or General Musharraf, who had taken part in a military coup in 1999, uh, that he should uh, uh, relinquish his command of the military so that the military's command uh, is separate from his politics. And the new military commander paved the way for negotiations. The idea was that Benazir Bhutto had popular support. Musharraf already wielded power. Uh, the war against the t terrorists in Pakistan could not be won just by brute force. They needed political support. So Benazir Bhutto made the big decision to go back. And the night before she left the U.S. on her last visit, my wife and I spent virtually the whole night sitting with Benazir Bhutto and her husband. And she had said, uh, you know, I do have the option of not going and just staying a comfortable life abroad. Uh, but Pakistan needs leadership and I need to provide it. So when I woke up that day, you know, because of the time difference... Were you difference, worried about her security? Oh, I was terribly worried about her security. I had spoken to her husband about it. I had to, spoken to U.S. officials about it. I had also spoken on behalf of uh, Benazir Bhutto uh, to certain security companies here uh, to see if we could provide some international-level uh, security in terms of uh, gadgets and technical means. Unfortunately, none of that worked. And part of it was because General Musharraf simply did not want to extend to her a higher level of security so that in her insecurity, she would continue to be aligned to him and she wanted to be a little more independent. As far as the jihadis were concerned, Benazir Bhutto being a woman and a leader of the world's, one of the world's largest Muslim countries, the only Muslim country with nuclear weapons, was simply unacceptable. Osama bin Laden, even way back in 1990, had tried to finance a, a political coup against her in parliament. So therefore, uh, they were definitely after her. And there had been one attempt on her in October, soon after she arrived. So this second one was successful. My wife was there, actually. She was running for parliament as a candidate for the Pakistan People's Party of Benazir Bhutto. And she was with her in hospital. And she called me. And she was crying. And she said, Bibi is dead. And so I just woke up. This was like early morning in, in, in the U.S. It was about, uh, and, and so I just, and then that whole day I just sat. Boston University has a radio studio. And I just sat there giving interviews and wrote an op-ed uh, while doing all of this in which I laid out because she had talked to me about the possibility of being eliminated. And she said that, you know, among the people who understand the ideas. There are the actual politicians who will execute politics back home, but you're one of those people who thinks, thinks through and has been writing about it. I want you to continue, uh, at least continue with the mission. And her last email to me was just hours before she died. She had sent me an email saying, you know, I'm going to this rally and um, I'm grateful to, for, uh, to you for all your support over the years. And I felt that, you know, it was like as if she had a premonition that she was saying that. So, yes, it was a day that is seared in my memory, but it changed many, many things. It brought a political government uh, with her husband in charge, but that was a lot less, shall we say, uh, effective than it would have been under her own leadership. And this, the consequence of her assassination, I think, plays in to your new book. 
which is called Reimagining Pakistan, Transforming a Dysfunctional Nuclear State. What's the central thesis? So the essential thesis is that Pakistan is the world's sixth largest country by population. It has the world's fifth largest military. It has the world's sixth largest nuclear arsenal. And yet it has the world's highest infant mortality rate. It has one of the highest number of out-of-school children in the world. 23 million children in Pakistan are out of school, any kind of school. It is seen by the world as an incubator of terrorism. You and I dealt with those issues on a daily basis while you were deputy director of the CIA and I was Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. Pakistan needs to change and it needs to overcome its uh, uh, human development deficit. It needs to become a country that the rest of the world can see as a stable country rather than a country that has had four military coups in 70 years, multiple changes of government without constitution being followed, etc. So the core thesis of this book is, can Pakistan reimagine itself? Because after all, nations and countries are imagined communities. Americans are Americans because they share a shared uh, some shared ideals. Right now, people might think that this is a divided country, but essentially, nations are brought together by some shared ideal. And in case of Pakistan, I say that the fact that Pakistan chose to uh, become an ideological country with its ideology having only two pillars, one is religion, Islamic religion, and the other being antipathy towards India, that that is the reason why Pakistan does not do well economically and it's wonderful people, brilliant. Some of them will be listening and they'll be saying, but I'm a good guy. And of course you are. And many Pakistanis make great contributions in the world as well as in Pakistan. But the state and government of Pakistan, because of its focus on religion-based politics, creates divisions because after all, all religion-based politics leads to sectarianism and splits over what is the true religion. And second, it's essential antipathy towards India. Now, you dealt with it as deputy director of the CIA that the Pakistanis would be supporting jihadi groups which do not bring stability to Pakistan, but they are willing to take that risk only because the same group can help them undermine India. And that, to me, is not a great national purpose. Yeah. So I want, I want to come back to that, but sticking with the bigger theme here, you, in fact, quote a historian who has said, that one of Pakistan's biggest challenges since its creation was, quote, the monumental task of formulating an identity distinct from India, unquote, as well as discarding the belief that India seeks to destroy Pakistan. What are the consequences of that truth for Pakistan and how it's developed and where it is today? Well, just to, a, a short sort of uh, summary of history. Pakistan was carved out of India. It was the Muslim-majority parts of India became Pakistan. It had two pa wings until 1971. What is today Bangladesh was East Pakistan from 1947 to 71. Bangladesh broke away because they felt that their ethnicity was more important than this attempt of one group in Pakistan maintaining control by emphasizing religion. So Pakistan was created under, and, and Pakistan was created in a hurry. That comes out in my book. I have not uh, missed words about finding historic references about how unprepared everything was uh, in terms of, of running the country. Pakistan got 17% of British India's resources, 19% of its population, and 33% of its military. 
So the natural instinct was, how do we utilize the military for everything? And so one way of utilizing the military for nation building was position it as we are not India. And there is some kind of an eternal conflict between us and India. Uh, the fact is that one third of British India's Muslim population stayed on in India. And according to demographic projections, within the next 15 years, India might have as many Muslims as Pakistan. So that is not enough. Now, sometimes nations and countries are born through historic processes and then they find a purpose other than uh, whatever was the stated purpose at the time of the creation. And in my book, I give the example of Belgium. Belgium, half French-speaking, half Dutch-speaking. Uh, the Dutch could very easily have said, hey, we, we belong with Holland, with the Netherlands. The French speakers could have said, we belong with France. Instead of doing that, they have created a Belgian identity. But that Belgian identity is not negative. It's not against anybody. It's not hostile to anybody. If the Belgians said that we want to compete with France in everything, like Pakistanis feel about India, Belgians would have to make a whole lot more chocolate than they do uh, to be able to reach there. And they decided not to do that. So they've become a very happy, important country in the middle of Europe, being the center of European politics, yet not being in adversarial relationship with Germany, the Netherlands or uh, France. Pakistan, on the other hand, looks at the whole world through the prism of antipathy towards India. And of course, nowadays in India also, there are a lot of people who are now reciprocating that, which is very sad. But originally, the founder of Pakistan, Mr. Jinnah, said that he wanted Pakistan to live besides India like Canada does with the United States. Now, look at the Canada-US relationship. Again, current situation yeah, notwithstanding. Yeah, yeah. The Canadians are also a mixed ethnicity nation like, uh, like the US, came out of sort of, you know, uh, of course, closer ties to Britain than the US did. But the US and Canada also had many conflicts over border demarcation, over maritime borders, etc. And yet Canada accepted that it's smaller than the US, it is less militarily powerful, and that it's in its interests to have a close relationship with the, uh, with the US. Think about a different situation. Supposing the Canadian-US relationship had been like the India-Pakistan relationship. Four wars in 70 years. A pursuit of nuclear weapons targeting each other. Running a proxy war through insurgents. Instead, Canada and the US have one of the longest open borders in the world. And it works for both. You have occasional trade disputes. But other than that, yeah, uh, when the uh, sort of uh, the Toronto team plays against New York or Boston and uh, the Blue Jays play the Red Sox or the Yankees in baseball, maybe there's momentary rivalry. But it's not like every Canadian wakes up thinking of how to vanquish the U.S. So this view of India as a threat has given the Pakistani military a tremendous amount of power in politics over the years. Oh, right? in everything. Economics as well. I mean, the military is, quote-unquote, and one of my chapters is titled that, the institution. And, for example, on Twitter, if you follow a lot of Pakistanis, you will soon discover that there are people who say, the institution must be respected, as if, you know, you cannot question whether the military should own large tracts of real estate, 
should have businesses of its own. Uh, there are estimates that a significant portion of Pakistan's economy, I mean, for example, there are conflicts in Pakistan with the brand name Fauji, which means army. And there's a bank called Askari Bank, which is again owned by the army. Why should militaries, welfare institutions have economic interests of that nature? Why should the military be able to dictate to politicians repeatedly? And all of that flows from this whole notion that Pakistan is perennially under threat. India is about to finish off Pakistan if it wasn't for the Pakistan military. So no negotiations, no diplomacy, nothing can be trusted. The only thing that can be trusted is the Pakistan army. So the continuation of the perception that it's a threat is in the interests of the Pakistani military. It is. It's in the institutional interests of the military. But again, longer term, if Pakistan becomes weak, it's a bit like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. You had something to do with bringing the Soviet Union down as, as, as a CIA officer. The Soviet Union, the Communist Party thought the same. But their interest was not the interest of the country. And in the end, when the country's economy couldn't sustain the competition that the Communist Party was breeding, they had to change. So my point is that change will come to Pakistan. Can we do it in a well-thought-out manner, as I lay it out in my book, or will we do it under exogenous pressures? We'll be right back with more of the discussion with Ambassador Hussein Akani after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. So you mentioned earlier saying that one of the places that this plays out is in Pakistan's schizophrenic approach to jihadists. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Throughout the 80s, Pakistan supported jihadis for Afghanistan, which the U.S. also supported. Let's be clear about that. Then the U.S. decided that the Soviet Union has left Afghanistan. Now these people need to be demobilized. Instead, Pakistan decided to create jihadi groups that were going to try and, quote-unquote, liberate Kashmir from India. That started a problem. Uh, those jihadis started acting inside India. But not only that. The U.S. at that time, if you remember, imposed sanctions over Pakistan's nuclear program, but also over Pakistan's support for terrorism. So that made Pakistan decide that it will use its international jihadi connections as a means of global leverage. So you found Pakistanis fighting in Bosnia as jihadis. You found Pakistanis fighting in, in the Middle East, in various places, etc. Now, come 9-11... Uh, the Pakistani military decided that it could not afford to have America as an adversary. So they said, we will help in eliminating extremists and jihadis. But again, the process of elimination has only been very selective. The groups that are useful for Pakistan's geopolitical interests, such as the Afghan Taliban, uh, the Haqqani Network, uh, the Lashkar-e-Taiba that uh, was responsible for the Mumbai attacks uh, in 2008... All these groups are tolerated and in some cases actively supported by the Pakistani state. On the other hand, groups like Al-Qaeda or uh, ISIS or 
TTP, which is the Pakistani Taliban, they are considered as enemies of the Pakistani state. Pakistan is willing to fight some and Pakistan is unwilling to fight others in the jihadi realm. What that does is creates the kind of situation that you and I both had to deal with was the discovery of Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. If we accept the Pakistani government's version and the Pakistani military's version that nobody in the military, nobody in the government knew Osama bin Laden was there, there is only one other explanation. And that is that some jihadi groups in Pakistan helped Osama bin Laden live in plain sight, hidden in plain sight in Pakistan. That shows how the jihadi groups that are accepted by Pakistan and tolerated by Pakistan end up supporting groups that Pakistan does not want to right. tolerate. Right. And that schizophrenia has torn Pakistan apart and has made its effort very difficult and its credibility very low. And has affected its relationship with Washington. Both, as you know, the Obama administration was frustrated with Pakistan with regard to this issue. Trump administration, likewise. But the two administrations handled that frustration in very, very different ways, right? The Obama administration, mostly behind closed doors, talked to Pakistan about it. The Trump administration has been loud, publicly loud. In fact, President Trump accused Pakistan of giving the United States, quote, nothing but lies and deceit. Talk a little bit about how Obama handled it, how Trump handled it, and your concerns about where we are today. Well, President Obama's approach was to negotiate and discuss with Pakistan. Uh, he made it very clear that his objective was to get Pakistan and its military to change its strategic calculus. That was the term that was used. I remember, yeah. That was our uh, policy. That was the policy. We are going to make Pakistan change its strategic calculus. I had written a book in 2005 titled Pakistan Between Mosque and Military in which I had a whole chapter of what the U.S. might consider doing. And one of the things I had suggested was reassure the people of Pakistan that uh, the U.S. is a friend of Pakistan give assistance for civilian purposes and at the same time talk with the Pakistani military. The Obama administration actually put that into practice. However, here was the catch. Civilians got the assistance package, the famous Kerry Luger bill, $7.5 billion over five years, a lot of money, uh, short for health care, education, etc. But the civilian government in Pakistan was not completely competent and uh, professional in being able to handle all this. But on the other hand, the military also created hurdles in the way because they suspected that American aid workers and everybody were CIA agents who will try to find jihadi groups that Pakistan was hiding. So that made it all very difficult. So, so, so the payoff that was meant to change Pakistan was not easily accepted and adapted inside Pakistan. Second component was that the military wanted complete autonomy in the sphere of foreign policy, national security, and in the conduct of the war against terrorism. Here, the Obama administration assigned the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Michael Mullen, to try and woo the Pakistan military chief. He met him 26 times. And after his 26th meeting, he came back and made that famous statement in which he said that the Haqqani network, which had recently attacked uh, the U.S. embassy in Kabul, was a veritable arm of the Pakistan army, which was very upsetting for the Pakistan army leader who had thought that this engagement was paying off. But it was basically frustration. So, right. so when you say that the Trump administration has spoken out much more, the process of speaking out had kind of started mm. right there. 
then I think the uh, Obama administration also spoke out through actions. They took out bin Laden without informing anybody in Pakistan, which basically meant we really don't trust you. We want to help you. There was a small, small line that the Obama administration held out, which was, we thank Pakistan for its past cooperation. Now, if Pakistan had taken that line, which I recommended as ambassador, we should. We should say, we've helped. Uh, we didn't help in this operation, but we want to help. And let this become the basis of more forward-looking cooperation. You remember that. You went mm -hmm. to Pakistan to try and discuss that. Can we do it more forward? And unfortunately, Pakistan's response was negative. The specifics that you, you gave, you know, I don't know if you and I should go into those, but you, you gave certain specific targets and we said... We probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you do this and this and this, then can. And none of that, this and this and this was done. Instead, all that information ended up with the jihadis. That disappointed them. Then, of course, I was personally targeted and removed because it was seen, said that, you know, instead of being Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S., I am U.S.'s ambassador to the U.S. sitting in Washington, U.S.'s ambassador to Pakistan sitting in Washington, D.C., which was all, for want of a better word, horse manure. Yet, that disappointment continued to build up. The Obama administration towards the end decided that we cannot change Pakistan's strategic calculus, but nothing is to be gained by provoking Pakistan and right. insulting them. Right, exactly right. Now, that may be the view of a lot of people, even today, that there is nothing to be gained by insulting anyone. In international relations, it's always best to talk to people gently, quietly, even when you're talking to them critically. The Trump administration has a very different way of doing things. This is a Twitter administration. Uh, everything is tweeted. Everything is announced. Uh, everything is said. Everything that is said is not done. So the quality of quiet diplomacy under previous administrations, and I would say that of the Bush administration, of the Obama administration, even further back of uh, the Clinton administration and the George H.W., that has all gone. That's changed. Now everything has to be loud. Question is, is something coming out of it? So far, we haven't seen any signs that Pakistan is about to change its strategic calculus just because it has been threatened. Doesn't it make it harder at the end of the day? For Pakistan to change yeah. its strategic calculus? Yes. I mean, any leader who is being attacked by a foreign leader uh, finds it difficult to change. Uh, that said, to, to, to be fair to the Trump administration, the Trump administration is saying at the same time that, you know, we will offer you carrots later if you respond to the sticks. But in the end, the relationship is going to move forward not on the basis of the words that are exchanged, whether they are hot words, publicly stated, or cool words, quietly undertaken. It will be on what the Pakistani military feels is the impact of, of American policies on its bottom line. So just to give you an example, I checked before I came here this morning. Pakistan's foreign exchange reserves are at $10 billion, which for a nation of 200 million that imports a lot is very little. Dangerously low. Very dangerous. That shows that the cutting off of U.S. assistance, the relative inaccessibility to endless IMF funding because the Americans asked the IMF to look the other way on conditionality, etc., that that's no longer available. China is bailing Pakistan out, but at the same time, China is trying to encourage Pakistan to change its view 
on things like foreign funding of terrorist groups, etc. Matters to China. Uh, which matters to China. So will we actually see a change in Pakistan as a result of a combination of moves from China, from Saudi Arabia, which is another friend of Pakistan, and the United States? Possible. But will harsh words alone change Pakistan? Unlikely. So um, we have just a few minutes left, Hussein. Back to your book. What has to happen for Pakistan to be transformed in a positive direction, in the direction you're talking about? I think the one, one of the first things that has to happen is for the Pakistani military to recognize that the job of a military, a professional military, is essentially to implement policies that are made by people who have a much broader view of the world than just the military. Uh, many years ago, I used to know a Pakistan army general who was our army chief in those days, in the 60s, uh, as a young boy. And he said to me, you know, son, a soldier's job is to locate the enemy and liquidate the enemy. But who is the enemy is something that has to be determined by many, many factors. He had been trained by the British, so therefore he had that view. But Pakistan's military has now ended up assuming that it knows everything. No military does. They can't know economics better than an economist. They can't understand international relations better than diplomats and professionals. So when they create this whole environment of the only thing that matters is the military factor, then they undermine the nation's ability to perform well in other sectors. And so if the Pakistani military as an institution can start thinking that, you know what, we, we have professional space and a professional sphere we may have opinions on other things. American generals who retire have opinions on everything. We've seen a few of them around. They can have political opinions as citizens, but they do not have the right to impose a veto. Second, Pakistan has to absolutely get out of the business of jihad. And for that, the Pakistan military's decision-making is critical. They have to decide that Hafiz Saeed of lashkar e that's the group that undertook the attack in Mumbai, is as bad for Pakistan as the Haqqani network that attacks inside Afghanistan and the Pakistani Taliban who attack inside Pakistan. Because these groups are interconnected, uh, whether we like them, uh, right. we, we like that interconnection right. or not. Right. And so once we get out of the business of jihad, allow a little more room for Pakistanis to consider options. What is politics, Michael? Politics is having two or three optional ideas and then picking one of them. Right. Debating them and picking them. Debating them and picking them. By stopping debate, for example, no one in Pakistan can stand up and say, Kashmir is less important to us than economic prosperity. You say that, you're a traitor. Good relations with India are in our interest. You say that, you're a traitor. What are we trying to do in Afghanistan? Instead of trying to impose a government in Afghanistan, why can't we become friends with whoever is the government in Afghanistan? Unacceptable. The U.S. and Pakistan should have stronger and more robust economic relations. U.S.-Pakistan trade is minimal. It's five, six billion dollars a year. Bangladesh exports more to the U.S. than Pakistan does. Instead, Pakistan has only sought aid from the U.S., primarily military aid. That's not a good relationship to have. We have such wonderful Pakistanis throughout the United States, doctors, engineers. These people can be the foundation for a multi-dimensional relationship in which American expertise can be available to Pakistan. So, Hussein, what happens, what happens if Pakistan 
can't change. What does it look like, you know, 20 years from now? Is a failed state a possibility? Is an extremist government uh, a possibility? I mean, what, what, what's the long-term consequence of the failure to change? So all of those are possibilities. I mean, the easiest could be a Soviet-like outcome where the economic non-viability of the strategic approach uh, becomes a disaster. And then there is change, which is not predicted and planned, but it happens. But alternatives are extremists gaining more influence than they have. It's definitely a realistic possibility. Already, I think that certain politicians in Pakistan who personally might not seem extremist are espousing views that are very extremist. And they are doing that primarily uh, to cater to a base that is extremist. We know about extremism, that it breeds extremism. And so that will be a problem. Another scenario could be further conflict with India, leading to hostilities, overt hostilities, which you and I have discussed at various times about the possibility of the two countries going to war despite having nuclear weapons which is not a good idea because then you never know when it might escalate into a nuclear exchange. What Pakistan and India right now have is subconventional warfare through jihadis, conventional warfare possibilities and nuclear possibilities. Will India constantly tolerate or Afghanistan forever tolerate jihadis being a subconventional thing? At which point does it escalate to a conventional war and when does it become a nuclear war? All difficult questions to answer. And last but not least, there is always the potential for political fragmentation or internal conflict that lasts for a long time. What is a failing state or a failed state? A failed state is a state that does not fulfill the basic functions of a state. The more the state embraces non-state actors, a state should always try to have monopoly over uh, coercive power. If that power is dispersed to various groups, So now you have the military, but then you also have these little militant groups, each one of whom is able to kill a few people here and there, etc. That is a recipe at some point for civil war as well. And civil wars often lead to failed states. One does not wish any of that for Pakistan. One wants Pakistan to be a successful state. And obviously, these are exaggerated future prospects. Right now, many people will say, hey, I was in Islamabad, I was in a nice restaurant having a nice meal. What's this guy talking about? No one is saying that this is happening tomorrow. We are talking about medium to long-term trajectories. Pakistan must change for its own sake because a nation of 200 million with only a 53%, just a barely over half its population, literate, uh, lagging behind in all major global indicators like higher education and secondary education, not doing well in exports and in economic productivity. Not producing jobs for the number not of producing young people. Jobs for the in, in number of young people. Half of Pakistan's population is below the age of 23. So 100 million people under the age of 23. That is a recipe for, if not disaster, for difficulty. And nations must try to overcome difficulties if they can. Just to give you one last point of reference. Since 1950, the U.S. has given $15 billion in aid to Taiwan, $10 billion in aid to South Korea, $43 billion in aid to Pakistan. 
even while providing for the difference in the population sizes of these countries, look at what South Korea has accomplished in terms of making a viable, productive economy versus Pakistan or Taiwan versus Pakistan. Because they made a decision about what was important. So, so Hussein, one, one last question for you. You can't go home, correct? Well, I can, but it would be a tremendous risk to me and my family. And I don't think I want to take that risk. Simply because you you have a view about a future um, for Pakistan that would challenge the power of the military. Absolutely. I have had multiple cases of treason and sedition filed against me while I can beat them in courts if I wanted to at some point. But why do I want to waste five? In Pakistan, judicial proceedings can last for 10, 15, 20 years. Benazir Bhutto's husband, our former president, Asif Zardari, spent 11 years in prison as an under-trial prisoner. And then subsequently, each of the cases was dismissed. And what, but and, and, but and, who wants to spend 11 years in prison uh, without bail over cases that are flimsy? And, and what does it mean to you that you can't go home to the country that you love so much? It hurts me. Uh, but at the same time, I look at other characters in history, including Pakistan's founder, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who spent some years in exile. I look at it as exile, not necessarily a ban or, uh, or, or a bar forever. Now, it might not come about the change, but my ideas are being read in Pakistan. There are people who are saying the man makes sense. They, because after all, the facts I'm pointing out, which many Pakistanis have chosen to ignore, are hard facts. And it's interesting that a lot of Pakistanis say, yeah, 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 everything you say is right, but the way you say it is wrong. And I say, okay, tell me another way to say it. How do I say that Pakistan has the world's highest infant mortality rate in a way in which it doesn't seem that Pakistan has the world's highest infant mortality rate? As far as the United States is concerned, it's a country I love as well. I have tremendous admiration for America's accomplishments. And I look at America's recent developments with the same trepidation that a lot of Americans do. Uh, but I don't think America's success or America's global role is incompatible with my love for Pakistan. Right. Hussein, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure being here, Mike. That was Ambassador Hussein Akani. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.